Well, we don't have video this morning, so those who are not here will not be able to judge me on my appearance this morning, but only on the thickness of my accent, which I'm very proud of. So, If you will, please turn your Bibles to John chapter 1, that is the Gospel of John, and we'll be looking at verses 19 to 34. When I was a kid, I had the gift of hyper-introspection. If you don't know what that is, maybe I'm defining it incorrectly myself, but it's the ability to inspect yourself, your inner self, deeply, to focus on deep things, uh, to not live in the moment, people who love living in the moment, and to ponder the beautiful futility of life. Now, you're probably saying, that's not a gift. Uh, and in a sense, you're correct. It was an absolute curse. Now, I still have this. It's not as bad as it was when I was younger. But here's an example of, of my strangeness as a kid. Uh, this was the 80s, so context here. I would, I would be sitting in the car by myself. It was the 80s. That was a thing that you did while your mom was in the grocery store or or probably chatting somebody up for a long period of time in a friend's house. And I would I would sit, and I remember moments where I'm looking at the grass or looking at a tree and just focus on it, and I'm thinking, that moment's gone forever. That moment's gone forever. That, I mean, and over and over into insanity. Well, in a sense, I had the ability, before I was a Christian, to think like Solomon in the book of Ecclesiastes. All of my work, all of my play, all of my relationships, my life goals, my future dreams, they're all in vain. And they're all empty. For the reason that Solomon kind of says in the book of Ecclesiastes, because I'm going to die. I'm going to die and none of those things will matter. Well, if you remember my original statement, you're probably still wondering, how is this a gift, right? That's a very good question. Well, it was constant torture on me growing up, but I do think it was the very thing that drove me to Christ. Uh, it forced me to realize that if I kept looking in here, if I kept looking inward, you know, the world says, be true to yourself, Work, uh, uh, operate according to your feelings, but for me, looking in here, spiraled down into despair and emptiness. So I had to look somewhere else. I had to look up. I had to look outside myself in order to find true meaning. I had to, in a sense, give up myself to make Christ the meaning and purpose of my life, my goals, my dreams, because he is the only one who could take the vanity of all those things and give them some real purpose. And this is where I think the Apostle John's mind is a little bit in this section of the Gospel of John as he introduces us to another John. This is why John doesn't normally say his name in the Gospel of John because he wants you to focus on John the Baptist and not get them confused. So we'll be talking about John the Baptist this morning. And I think John is trying to, to, to teach us that 
You don't look inward to find purpose. You look to the creator, the word, the one that he has already talked about in this chapter. And in these verses in 19 to 34, John the Baptist is going to show us the way in which all of us should respond when we encounter the living Christ. In this encounter, we should begin to say who I am, who I was, who I will be, everything that I desired before I met him belongs to him now. I lay it at his feet. It's all his. I have beheld the lamb. That's the cry of this passage. Behold the lamb. He is preeminent. True joy and true meaning are found when we follow the teaching of John the Baptist who says, I must decrease and he must increase. Now, if you will, look in your bulletins, you'll see the outline if you want to follow along uh, the order of my thinking here. But let us read God's word in the Gospel of John, beginning in chapter 1, starting in verse 19. And this is the testimony of John. When the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, Who are you? He confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. And they asked him, What then? Are you Elijah? He said, I am not. Are you the prophet? And he answered, No. So they said to him, Who are you? We need to give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? He said, I am the voice of one crying in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. Now they had been sent from the Pharisees. They asked him, Then why are you baptizing if you are neither the Christ, nor Elijah, nor the prophet? John answered them, I baptize with water. But among you stands one you do not know, even he who comes after me, the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. These things took place in Bethany across the Jordan where John was baptizing. The next day, he saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said, After me comes a man who ranks before me, because he was before me. I myself did not know him, but for this purpose I came baptizing with water, that he might be revealed to Israel. And John bore witness. I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove, and it remained on him. I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, He on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, This is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and have borne witness that this is the Son of God. In verses 19 to 23, John the Baptist tells us who he is, what his role is, and most significantly, who he is not. John wants us to know who he is not. So who was John? 
This was the question that the Jewish leaders desperately wanted to know. John's appearance, John's actions were were very much like that of an Old Testament prophet, somebody like Elijah or another prophet. And we know from the, from the rest of the Gospels that when these leaders come and they ask questions, they usually don't have good motives. And that's why uh, John the Apostle has that little editorial in there that says, they were sent by the Pharisees, because he wants you to know, these people are not, they are not seeking truth. They are not seeking to confirm or, uh, or deny what's going on here. They're just trying to use it for their own purposes. They, they were following, in a sense, the footsteps of the false kings, the false prophets, and the false priests of the Old Testament. They were curious about John because they were worried that if he, if he was going to come against their power, they need to stamp it out. Or maybe they could even use John to increase their power. And you see this kind of confusion back and forth with the authorities about how to use John. Was he a prophet? Was he not a prophet? And they never wanted to land on one side or the other. But their attitude as they come should have been an attitude of fear. There's a Hebrew word that's used to describe the ministry of an Old Testament prophet. The word is reeve, a reeve. Spelled R-I-V. And the prophet would bring what's called a reeve, and what a reeve is, is it is a, it is a legal dispute. You have to think of the Mosaic Covenant as the legal contract between God's people and, and, and himself. And the prophets were sent by God like accusing attorneys. And they would bring accusations against God's people and show them where they have broken the law and what the consequences of that breach is. So to see an Old Testament-type prophet show up should have inspired fear in them. And perhaps this did make them a little afraid uh, of the arrival of John because he might be what the prophets always referred to as the one who would show up and actually bring judgment to God's people. The first thing John tells them in verse 20 is that he is not the Messiah. I am not the Christ. He is not the one who is to come. Next they want to know, are you Elijah? And if you're confused about that question, you can turn back to the book of Malachi, uh, chapter 4, and if you don't turn too far, because Malachi is basically in the New Testament. I always make that mistake. I turn way too far. (laughs) I have to come back to Malachi. So Malachi 4, 5, the prophet tells Israel that before the final judgment comes, Elijah the prophet would actually be sent back by God to turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and turn the children's hearts back to their fathers. But John tells, John the Baptist tells his interrogators, I am not Elijah. Now does anybody know that there's a kind of a problem with him saying that? Raise your hand if you know that. Okay, there's a, there's a handful of you. The problem is that Jesus said John the Baptist was Elijah. In Matthew 11, in Matthew 17, and in Mark 9, Jesus tells us that John is the fulfillment of Elijah the prophet coming back before the judgment. 
Now, is John lying? Is John the Baptist lying? Well, I hope that's not, that's not a, a, an option for us. It is possible that John was ignorant. That is, a, that is a possibility that John didn't know that he was the fulfillment of Elijah. But I think most likely what John is doing here is he is denying the type of Elijah return that the Jews were expecting. You see, Elijah never died. Elijah was carried up in a chariot of fire. And his, his disciple Elisha was there to see that. And so because of this, the Jews thought that the actual person, Elijah, was going to come back like a resurrection or a return from heaven uh, before the judgment day. But the prophecy was not meant to be literal. There are lots of places in the Old Testament where we'll say something that sounds literal, but it's more of a, a type or a foreshadowing. And I believe uh, uh, Luke 117 gives us the best interpretation of Malachi's prophecy. In Luke 117, the angel appears to John's father, uh, Zechariah, the priest, and he says about John the Baptist, he says, He will go before the Lord in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready for the, pe- for the Lord a people prepared. So you can see there the quote of Malachi 4, and the angel is applying it not in a literal way, but that John will have the spirit and power of Elijah. So just like Elijah and his disciple Elisha, John the Baptist has this confronting spirit. And you see this from John the Baptist. And you saw this in Elisha, who confronted constantly one of the, one of the most evil kings in Israel's history, Ahab. Now the next identity that John denies is that he is the prophet. Does anybody know why the Jews want to know if he's the prophet? Raise your hand if you know what it means by the prophet. Ken, is Ken the only one? Okay, Tanya knows. All right. So most likely they're referring to a prophecy in Deuteronomy 18 where the Lord tells Moses that one day he is going to raise up a prophet like Moses from among the people of God. But John knew that that he is not this new Moses. And we know that he's not this new Moses because uh, in the book of Acts, both Peter and Stephen in sermons uh, to the Jews reference scriptures that talk about the new Moses and apply it to Jesus Christ. So this is a title for Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the new Moses. And you see this teaching in the book of Hebrews chapter 3 as well. So if John is not the physical resurrection of Elijah, and he is not the Moses-like prophet, then who is he? This is what the Jews want to know. Well, John says, I am only a messenger. I'm a voice crying in the wilderness, a warning sign sent to God's people to tell them, get ready. Imagine for a moment that that you are in London at midnight during World War II. There's a large body of water between you and the oncoming German forces But what is the thing that the Germans can still use to get to you? They can use air raids. And so 
it was common living in Britain during World War II in the middle of the night to be startled awake by this eerie sound, the sound of an air raid siren. And it would echo through the town and it would instill fear in you and you knew what it meant. But your focus was not on the sound. Your focus was on what the sound was telling you to flee from. Flee to safety, flee to security. That was the purpose of the siren. It wasn't to draw attention to itself, but to draw attention to the danger that was coming and to tell you to get to safety. And John says, I am like that siren. I'm not the new Moses. I'm not Elijah. I'm not the Messiah. I am an instrument. I'm an echoing voice. I'm a loudspeaker that doesn't draw attention to myself, but that's telling you to flee to safety to the word of God, the living Christ. John was there to be a herald, to announce the coming of the Messiah. But he was also there to prepare the hearts of the people. And that's part of Malachi's prophecy, that John would prepare the hearts of his people. And part of that preparation in his ministry was the ministry of baptism. And this brings us to our second point. Starting in verse 25, it says, They asked him, Then why are you baptizing, if you are neither the Christ, nor Elijah, nor the prophet? John answered them, I baptize with water, but among you stands one you do not know, even he who comes after me, the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. Now those of you who are wishing for a deep dive into the meaning of John's baptism, I'm not going to give that to you. The New Testament really doesn't tell us how John's baptism originated. It, get, it doesn't give a ton of information on, on how it's different and similar uh, to the baptism commanded by Christ. It doesn't give a whole lot of information about how John's baptism was connected to Old Testament ceremonies. There are allusions and logical implications uh, for us to squeeze out and find those things, uh, but they're not real obvious in the New Testament. The one thing we do know is that the Jews were not unfamiliar with baptism. Baptism was not a New Testament creation. The priest and Levites didn't come up to John and say, what is this weird thing you're doing with water? We've never seen this before. No, they, they knew what he was doing. They were in a context where they understood baptism from some perspective. Many believe that John was doing something like uh, the Jewish practice of proselyte baptism, which I won't get into a lot. Uh, but basically that was if you were a Gentile and you were outside of Israel and you wanted to become part of the people of faith, your, all your males were circumcised, but your females were baptized. And this was to represent a, a cleansing, making you ceremonial clean, ceremonially clean, that word's hard to say, and so that you could be in the presence of God's people and, and be part of the worship. Uh, <clears throat> and since John was doing this to Jews, especially male Jews, it might have been a sign that there, that there was a beginning or a marking out of a new Israel. So that's a possibility of John's baptism. But most likely, this is kind of where I land, most likely 
I think John is fulfilling Old Testament passages like Zechariah 13.1, which says, On that day there shall be a fountain open for the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem to cleanse them from their sin and uncleanness. Baptism from the Old Testament perspective, which I think is connected to the New Testament imagery, is, is a picture of cleansing, a setting apart, a preparation uh, to be apart and in the presence of God's people. In John's baptism, we see the covenant sign shifting from, from bloodshedding that happened in the Old Covenant to water cleansing. And the reason for this was because the shedding of blood was about to be fulfilled. The purpose of shedding or pointing to shedding of blood was going to be fulfilled in Christ. Therefore, the covenant sign was changing over to a cleansing symbol. Now, to my Baptist friends, and I know you're in here. It's okay. We're glad you're here. I don't want you to think that, that I think that John's baptism was just about ceremonial cleansing, because I don't. Uh, because I do think that it pointed to a, a deep spiritual reality, uh, the reality of regeneration, and, uh, and that it was more than ceremonial, but I do think that was an aspect of it. But in all the difficulty in understanding John's baptism, we can all agree that its purpose was to prepare God's people for the Messiah, and part of its purpose was to point them to the greater baptism, which was the baptism of the Spirit that can only be given by Jesus Christ. So John's testimony is that he is not the Messiah. He's just a voice. And his ministry is one of baptism, and he's there to prepare God's people. And his purpose is not to gather followers to himself, but to prepare God's people for the ministry of the Savior that is about to take place. And that brings us to our third point. Starting in verse 29, it says, The next day he saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said, After me comes a man who ranks before me, because he was before me. I myself did not know him, but for this purpose I came baptizing with water, that he might be revealed to Israel. And John bore witness. I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove, and it remained on him. I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, He on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and have borne witness that this is the Son of God. Verse 29 is the whole main point of John's ministry. John says, don't look at me. My ministry, my purpose is to point to the Lamb of God, not myself. My work will end, but I'm pointing you to the one whose work is ongoing and eternal. And shouldn't this be the heart cry of everyone who follows Christ? I'm a pastor of this church. I have a purpose here. I have a ministry that God has called me to. But my ministry here is temporal. It's transient. It's passing away. But there's a sense in which it is eternal. 
Now, if I make my preaching, my counseling, my prayers, my discipleship of others, if I make it about drawing followers to myself, if I make it about puffing myself up, if I make it about pleasing my ego, my ministry is temporal. Because I will die, and anyone who follows me will not be following anything of eternal value. But if I see my ministry as temporal in the sense that I'm just temporarily here pointing others to the eternal Savior, then my ministry has eternal and ongoing and lasting meaning. This is the paradox of finding true life by giving up self, by dying to self. And it's real easy, isn't it? It's easy to just give up yourself, right? Just seeing if you're awake. (laughs) I think that this paradox is something that John the Baptist, perhaps more than any follower of Christ in the New Testament, shows us in his life. There's a lesson here for every Christian. When you talk of Christ to the people you work with, when you talk of Christ to your friends, uh, to your family, make sure that they understand that the gospel message isn't about talking about me or drawing attention to me. It is about drawing attention and giving glory to Jesus Christ. Because we are all just voices crying in the wilderness. We should all be shouting to a dying world, look at him. Don't look to me. We should be honest with others about our shortcomings, our sins, our failures, our inability to save ourselves or anybody else. Because we need the Lamb of God that we are asking others to behold just as much as they do. And the Lamb of God is is imagery that John the Baptist knew well. He grew up in the temple as the son of a priest. He had seen his father prepare and participate in the ceremonial uh, rituals of sacrificing lambs. But John knew that that lamb never took away his sin. He knew that those lambs were only pointing to the real lamb of God, the only one that could ever truly be a sacrifice for our sin. What are your felt needs? It's probably something you don't hear from this pulpit very often. What are your, some of you probably cringe to hear me say that. What are your felt needs? Do you need freedom? Do you need to be able to express yourself without judgment? Do you need wealth? Do you need health? Do you need popularity? Do you need others to notice me? Are you like the two-year-old jumping up and down saying, Daddy, 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 look at me. Do you need romantic love or the security of family and loyal friends? Do you need control over your life? Now, these are not, I've not listed everything that I've listed here is not bad. And they're not, they're not evil things to desire. But when we seek these felt needs in a cursed world, if we are looking inside of our fallen selves while ignoring our true need, 
we will only find despair and emptiness. Because our greatest need, whether we feel it or not, is to have the Lamb of God take our sins away. Serving self in the pursuit of freedom and self-expression ends in emptiness. Pursuing wealth that you will just give to another when you are gone is pointless. Pursuing health that will add a vapor to your life in comparison to eternity is futile. And pursuing relationships that fuel your ego and your passions and your pride, those actually lead to loneliness. The puzzling thing is that when we serve self-interest in a cursed world with a sinful heart, we destroy self. We love self and serve self, but we're destroying self in pursuit of self. The only way to truly serve yourself is to seek your identity and your forgiveness in the Lamb of God. And how did John know who the Lamb was? The text tells us. He says, it might be confusing when you hear John the Baptist say, I did not know him. You might think, oh, was John not saved? He's talking about knowing that he was the Messiah. So he says he didn't know who he was at first. Jesus was a relative of John. So uh, Elizabeth was related to Mary. I think they were shirt-tail cousins or something like that. And they might have grown up together a little bit, but, but John never knew that Jesus was the Messiah until he talks about it in verse 31. <clears throat> we see that, uh, that Jesus was revealed to him in the baptism. And, and you see in verse 31 a unique aspect of John's baptism that I've never really considered. He says that the purpose of his baptism was to reveal to Israel and to himself who the Messiah was. And in verse 32 he says that the way in which Jesus was revealed was that the Spirit descended upon him like a dove and hovered over him during his baptism. And this is more good Old Testament imagery. Once again, we're taken back to the book of Genesis, to the power of Jesus as the creator. In Genesis 1-2, it says that the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the deep. Once again, the Spirit is hovering over the waters of baptism, showing that the same Trinity who created the world who created the universe, was there and was part of the new creation. Baptism, I think, partly is pointing to the new creation. And the dove, of course, was, was also a symbol of another type of new creation after the flood. If you remember, the dove uh, found dry land for Noah and gave him hope that there was going to be a new life, a new world, a type of new creation after God's judgment. There was life after the judgment, and that's what the dove points to. John has made clear the superiority of the ministry of Christ. And he even goes on to say in verse 33 that not only is his ministry inferior, but John's baptism is inferior 
to the superior baptism of Jesus Christ. John baptized with water, but Jesus baptizes with the Holy Spirit. Now, I'm not going to, once again, do a deep dive into what baptism of the Holy Spirit means. There's all kinds of, like, systematic theology sermons that could come out of this passage. I do believe here that John is foreshadowing Pentecost, when the Spirit was poured out on the apostles, and they spoke in different languages or different tongues or different dialects, and everyone understood them on the day of Pentecost. But even Pentecost points to the ultimate meaning of baptism of the Spirit, which is simply the new creation, regeneration, new life, glorification, sanctification, in essence, everything that salvation uh, supplies. And I believe that we can learn something about the theology of sacraments from John in this passage. God uses sacraments as wonderful means of grace. And I am Presbyterian, so I do believe that there is true grace given through the sacraments. But they in themselves do not save. Participating in the sacrament does not save you. It is the baptism of the Spirit that saves you. It is the Spirit working in the preaching of the Word. Preaching doesn't save you. It's the Spirit working in the preaching that saves you. It's the Spirit working in baptism. It's the Spirit working in the Lord's table. Just as it was the Spirit working in the Old Testament ceremonial rituals that pointed to Christ. The Spirit is the one who unites you to Christ and gives you new life and salvation. The confession says that the grace of the sacraments rightly used is not given by any power in them, nor by the piety or intention of the one who administers it, but upon the work of the Spirit and the Word. And I love the emphasis in John 1.32 of the necessity of the Spirit even in the ministry of Christ. The Spirit remained on him. And the implication there is that, that the Spirit was with Jesus throughout his entire ministry. And if Jesus needed the Spirit during his ministry, then we ought to never think that we can do anything for Christ apart from the Spirit. Now, in conclusion, I want to first say that that there is a sense in which we should read this account and say, I want to be like John. It's a good thing. It's better than being like Mike, right? Anybody old enough to remember I want to be like Mike? I'm getting old. John, John understood that he was not preeminent. He was not the Savior, but he was only one who pointed to the Savior. As you disciple others, this should be your goal, that they follow you only as they follow Christ. That's what Paul said. Follow me as I follow Christ. And as you choose those whom you're going to follow, look for those who are pointing you to Christ, not to yourself or not to themselves. Now, another thing we should not do in this passage is make John the hero. His faith is to be imitated by us. That's, 
That's not wrong. But if we focused on John in this passage too much, we would probably get a rebuke blasted with fragments of locust and honey. John had great faith. And it's difficult to find many faults with John. But the scriptures do tell us that he wasn't perfect. When John was facing death, he was sitting in a cold prison. He had told everyone, this is the Messiah, this is the Lamb. But he was starting to get discouraged. And even sent people to Jesus to ask him if he really was the Lamb. So in his last moments, John had doubts. Now, hopefully we can understand those doubts. But he was not perfect. Men like Moses... David, Elijah, and John the Baptist are great examples for us. But they would all say, don't look to me, look to the Lamb. I don't know how long I will minister in this church, but a hundred years from now, I hope this church is still here. I hope it's still vibrant. I hope that it's still clinging to the true faith. But I hope they're not saying a hundred years from now, Remember Danny? Remember Pastor Mike? Remember Art Dunn? That's probably the one they will remember. (laughs) Remember those great VBS jokes? No, if we have been faithful, they will be saying, Behold the Lamb who takes away the sin of the world. This should be the anthem in the heart of every child of God as we teach others in the church as we evangelize a lost world, and especially as we stand before the judgment seat of God. To fallen men, we say, look, there he is, the one in whom your sin has been punished, the one who lived perfectly for you. Run to him, find your security, find your shelter in him. And as we fix our gaze on him, the Father also fixes his gaze upon him. And you know what the father says? He says, I cannot see the sins of my people because my gaze is fixed upon my son. I only see his righteousness and his cleansing on their behalf. And I am pleased with it. Finding ourselves and finding our and finding others In Jesus Christ, on the day of judgment, is the eternal purpose of your very temporary life. Amen.